This is Tripod, New Orleans at 300. I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson. I crashed an opera rehearsal the other day. In a room on the second floor of a church uptown, a large group of vocalists, young, old, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, all the genders, belted out in rows surrounding a piano. They were preparing for the 75th anniversary celebration of the New Orleans Opera Association. But I was there to talk to a mother-daughter opera combo Giovanna Joseph and Aria Mason. Well, see, this is the thing. Oh, God. <laughs> when she was little, people would always say, are you going to sing like your mom? It would drive her crazy. I'm so tired of people. No, I'm not going to sing. That's Giovanna talking about her daughter, Aria. And I said, are you supposed to be who you were born to be? I'm not going to tell you what you are going to do. So she got to middle school. She decided she would play saxophone in the, in the middle school band, and she was not going to sing. And at some point, the bug bit her. And by the time she got to college, all of a sudden, she says, I'm going to major in, in, in voice. What? <laughs> I mean, you did name her Aria. I did. I took a chance. She could have been tone deaf. That wouldn't have worked out so well. I just had to wait a few years. Yeah. Giovanna's been performing since she was a child. She was often the only black girl in her musical theater classes. And I would try to get my friends to come with me to do that. And they were, you know, oh, we don't do that. Why are you doing that? In high school, she got into opera. You know, guys like, you do what? <laughs> so, <laughs> so dating criteria was, will you come to my concerts? If you cannot handle that, no, goodbye. Her daughter, Aria, also an opera singer, is just as familiar with how shocked people are when they find out what she does. But this doesn't surprise her. She studied classical music and says black people were largely missing from the curriculum. And when they were there... It was mostly for their quote-unquote exotic compositions or things that evoked Afro-American life or Caribbean life or what have you. Nothing that really gave the full body of understanding of the way that they decided to write or the, the pictures that they chose to paint throughout their career as you would a Mozart, a Schubert, a Liszt, a Strauss, or someone like that. That's why these two founded Opera Creole, a company dedicated to performing works by composers of African descent, especially those from 19th century New Orleans. And the reason they're able to do this is that opera was huge in New Orleans back then, and there were a lot of black composers. Charles Lucien Lambert, Azil Barre, Sister Seraphine, Victor Eugene McCarthy, Edouard Dejean, Dubuclay, Samuel Snyder, Edmond Dede. Let's look at the general opera scene in the early 19th century for a second. Opera's pretty bougie today, but back then it was pop music. People sang it while they did their laundry, while they cooked, while they walked down the street. And even though bigger cities up north have more of a reputation for opera, New Orleans was doing it bigger and better first. A lot of people just don't know that. But Jack Belsom does. I started going to opera here in 1945. Okay. Okay. 
I can think of only one exception that I haven't heard every opera performance that they've done here, both nights. There is no one else like Jack. He's a fanatic and knows pretty much everything there is to know about opera in New Orleans, including why it was so big here. For a lot of the population, beginning in the early part of the, of the 19th century, uh, they had perhaps moved here from France, and so they had this was their background from where they came from. And not just people from France, but from French colonies, particularly the colony of Saint-Domingue, what today is the independent country called Haiti. They had had opera since the 1750s and 60s in Haiti. That's John Barron, who wrote a book on concert life in 19th century New Orleans. If they didn't teach their slaves how to read or write, they taught them how to play the violin. Then, at the end of the 18th century, the Haitian Revolution sent thousands of refugees to New Orleans. And so there were very talented musicians who suddenly came here. Black, white, free, slave, all kinds of people with all kinds of backgrounds, but a passion for opera. And um, they missed it when they came here in the seven, early 1790s. This was the entertainment they were used to in France. This was the entertainment they were used to in Haiti. This is what they wanted to have here in New Orleans. So it didn't take them long to start opera. You're listening to Tripod, New Orleans at 300. I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson. The first opera was performed in New Orleans in 1796, Ernest Gretry's Sylvain. What you're hearing right now. After that, it just snowballed. By the mid-1800s, there were well over 200 productions a year. Jack Belson gives a rundown of the 1855 season at the Orleans Theater. The season began on the 25th of November, 1855, and it ran on a weekly basis then until the 31st of May, 1856, with approximately five performances per week, usually Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday performances. And that's just one theater. There were at least four opera houses operating simultaneously around then. And choose your language, French, English, German, Spanish, Italian. The Italians obviously loved opera. They sang opera from the time they were born, practically. And so they were going Countless to... operas in Europe had their U.S. premiere in New Orleans. Sometimes an opera would open in Paris and New Orleans on the same night. And everyone was there. Anybody could buy a ticket to the opera. And they did. The opera houses were open to all people in the city, but they were segregated. John Barron. There were sections in the opera houses marked off for slaves or servants, uh, others for free people of color. The most expensive seats were a dollar, and it went all the way down to a quarter. One area that wasn't segregated was the pit, the orchestra pit. There were so many classically trained black musicians that played in these pits, so many that they eventually decided to form their own group. Here's Giovanna Joseph of Opera Creole. Uh, in 1840, there was an independent orchestra formed of mostly free men of color, a hundred men. This was the Philharmonic Society, the first independent orchestra in New Orleans. It was conducted by a black violinist named Constantine de Berg. They performed mostly in, the, in their own theater, which was on the Legion Fields and Dauphine, uh, called the Renaissance Theater. Where United Hardware is today. Even though Creole musicians were employed by opera houses across the city, they still chose to found their own orchestra in their own theater. 
There's not much else out there about the Philharmonic Society other than what I just told you, but there is a lot of interest. One thing we do know is that many of the Creole composers that were named in the beginning of this story were members. One of them was a guy named Edmund Dede. Well, let me first say that he was my first love. <laughs> Giovanna speaking figuratively, of course. Uh, his Mon Pauvre Car was the first published work by a free man of color in New Orleans. And um, it's just a beautiful piece. And that was one of the first pieces that I learned. Here's Giovanna singing that piece in Paris in 2008. Dede didn't just play music. He wrote it. A lot of it. He wrote about six operas, five operettas. Short operas. One opera comique. Funny operas. As well as uh, symphonies and choral works, piano works. Just a prolific composer. The thing is, to this day, none of his operas have ever been performed. Edmund Dede was born a free person of color in 1829. His parents, also free, came to New Orleans in 1809, after the Haitian Revolution. His dad was a musician and played with a local military band. This turned Edmund on to the clarinet, but he soon switched to the violin and never let go. He studied with well-known Italian composer Ludovico Gabici, one of a few white musicians in the city who taught people of color. He played in pit orchestras for operas and symphonies and eventually joined the Philharmonic and started writing his own music. The thing is, no one would play it. He had a really hard time when he was here because of the discrimination that he was constantly going through, specifically as a dark-skinned Black man. Sultana Isham is a violinist and composer in New Orleans and is studying Dede. In the 19th century, white composers published sheet music with their faces on the front cover. But Creole composers didn't for fear their music wouldn't sell. And pictures of Dede show he was particularly dark-skinned. But he was extremely talented and he didn't allow that to stop him from getting what he needed to get and do what he wanted to do. Dede realized his musical career could only go so far in the South, and so he needed to get out. He moved to Mexico when he was 19 and worked in a cigar factory to make money. He worked and saved for three years. When he returned to New Orleans in 1851, the Civil War was looming, and race relations felt more threatening than before. Dede continued playing music and working as a cigar maker in New Orleans for six more years until he finally had enough money to leave for good. He went to France, bounced around conservatories there, and a few years later became the conductor of the Grand Théâtre of Bordeaux. Clearly, things moved a lot faster for him across the pond. 
And he was successful, very successful. This is Harold Day-Day. He is our grandfather's uncle. Harold didn't know about his famous relative until he was in high school in 1961. Neither did his cousin, Wesley Day-Day. I was driving a streetcar, and it was, um, what you call it? Uh, Writer's Digest. Yeah, Writer's Digest. He was in the Writer's Digest. The streetcar used to have a free weekly brochure, the Writer's Digest, which advertised community events, streetcar service news, and had a recurring history column called Did You Know? So Wesley's riding the streetcar one day. And I pick it up and start reading it, and when I seen the last name Day-Day, I just automatically say, well, I got to find out a little more. Oh, my gosh. So how did you find out? No, well, I found out from finding the same thing, Writer's Digest. So did you tell Harold about it, or did you both separately figure this out in the same way? Separately figured it out. You you know there's not too many people whose last name is Day-Day in the city, and when that name come up... Yeah, we're all related. We're all related. You're listening to Tripod, New Orleans at 300. I'm Lane Kuppen-Levinson. It felt like a big holiday. I was trying to figure out. I didn't think I had a relative with that kind of status. When I found out, I said, you know what? I have an uncle that was the first black man to play in the Metropolitan Opera House. I brought it to school with me every day. Wesley took that Writer's Digest to high school with him every day in 1961, and he searched for his great-great-uncle's music. But it wasn't until he and Harold were adults when they finally heard it. Here's Harold. I had a doctor, believe it or not. He told me about the Hot Springs Festival. In 2000, Arkansas's Hot Springs Music Festival Symphony Orchestra performed some of Day-Day's work for a live album. This is one of the only known recordings of his music. I found the CD and have loved it ever since. (laughs) Okay. Back to Dede, who finally made a go of his career in France. He conducted that orchestra in Bordeaux for 27 years. He married, he had children, and they also went on to play music. Then, one month after the Civil War ended, on May 10, 1865, Dede's work finally premiered in New Orleans. His Quasimodo Symphony was performed by an African-American orchestra before a packed house. I don't know what it sounds like because I couldn't find a recording of it. Dede didn't show up to this premiere. It took a few more decades until he finally did come home to New Orleans, this time to give a concert of his own. And he barely made it. His boat is shipwrecked. That's music historian John Barron. He lands in Corpus Christi. Imagine, you haven't returned to your hometown for 35 years because that hometown wouldn't let you make a living being a composer because you have dark skin. You finally decide to make the voyage home and your ship sinks. You manage to survive the wreck, but you lose your precious violin that you were planning on performing with. After all that, you finally get to New Orleans to perform and you're roadblocked once again. He um, could not perform in the French Opera House or the major venues here. And uh, he was forced to perform in black churches, where the acoustics were horrible. It's 1893. Slavery's over, and Reconstruction is too. White ex-Confederates are regaining control of the city. 
the relations between blacks and whites in many cases were worse. Critics of the time said it was a shame Day Day couldn't play in the concert halls. But whites flocked to his concerts in the churches anyway. Because they knew of his reputation as a great violinist. They wanted to hear him. It didn't matter. Dede was insulted and traumatized. He went home to France and never returned. Violinist Sultana Isham still has trouble getting her hands on Dede's music. I mean, I can play what I know from ear, just like what I've heard. Which is why Sultana needs to do her own transcriptions of Dede's music if she wants to play it. I'm listening to her play Dede's Reverie Champêtre, that she's reading from a piece of printer paper with notes plotted out on four staff lines that she drew herself. That's how inaccessible Dede's sheet music is. But it only motivates her to continue studying him. I am trying to replace what is default for me, especially with this genre classical music is my first language of music. And yet that still surprises people. I've had experiences where people have told me, wow, I've never seen a black person play the violin before. With such confidence and such ease with saying that, thinking that, that was very okay to say to me. Sultana relates to Dede in a lot of ways. She says people have always reminded her of her race in the classical world, as if there's some disconnect between her skin color and her playing classical music. One story specifically stands out during her freshman year studying music at Syracuse University. And I had an ear training exam, and I stayed up all night before. I didn't really get any sleep, studying really, really hard, because this was the hardest class for everyone. And the professor passed out the exams, and the exams were on like white sheets of paper, but he gave me a manila colored test. And they t- said that they were giving me the manila colored test because I was black in front of everyone. And then went on to say how we test lower than everyone else. The teacher bias. actually printed your test on a different color. Mm-hmm. A manila colored test. You went out of your way. That's what I mean. Like, they reminded me who I was. Race overshadowed ability, just like Dede. He could write an amazing opera, but no one in New Orleans would stage it. He could play violin as good as anyone else, but he couldn't play it in a concert hall where people played violin. And over a century later... I felt pushed out of that world. So there's that fear there that you're composing and you're making music and that there are still forces that are going to try to kind of snuff that out. Right. I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want my work that I spend a lot of time on to just fade away. And I've become aware of the many different ways that they do that. So Sultana works to preserve Dede's legacy and forge a path for her own work to be recognized and celebrated. And Giovanna Joseph and Aria Mason of Opera Creole are doing the same thing. They founded a company dedicated to performing works of Black classical composers so that people know that there were Black classical composers and can enjoy their music. Here's Aria. The narrative of white supremacy only succeeds if you can continue to produce proof of the inferiority of certain groups of people. And classical music is seen as the pinnacle of sophistication, technical proficiency, brilliance of music. 
And if your narrative is, this was created by European descent people for European descent people, people of African descent did not participate in writing this. Mm -hmm. And when you come back and actually say all of that narrative is in fact incorrect, you're not only restoring a voice to the women and men who wrote the music and performed the music, you're also telling other people the narrative of white supremacy is a false narrative. Aria and Giovanna are currently transcribing Dede's opera Morgian ou le Sultan d'Ispahan from French to English and plan to give it its world premiere in 2019. At last, Dede's opera will be staged in New Orleans. And they're not stopping there. You want to write an opera? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you written operas before? Well, no. Daughter is shaking her head. Daughter shaking her head, but daughter who also knows that this is a woman who will do whatever she needs to to achieve her vision. That's right. Tripod is a production of WWNO New Orleans Public Radio in collaboration with the Historic New Orleans Collection and the Midlow Center for New Orleans Studies at UNO. Special thanks to Evan Christopher for the opening theme music. Catch Tripod on the air Thursdays during Morning Edition and again on Mondays during All Things Considered. You can hear Tripod whenever you want by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes. When you go to subscribe, rate it, review it. Get it on that iTunes homepage, however that happens. We're, we're, we're still waiting. We're still waiting. Uh, follow us on social media at Tripod Nola. I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson and I'll Tripod you later. <laughs>